Hi, how are you doing? This morning I got up at half past six, had a bit of breakfast, got on the Duchess and cycled to a local Woodland Trust site. It's the same place where I came to hear Nightingales earlier in the series. And there is one singing very close to me right now. Two, in fact. I'm not here for the nightingales today though. I'm here for another rare and declining bird, the turtle dove. My name's Melissa Harrison and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. Through summer and into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 11 of The Stop and Light of Things. lovely to hear that nightingale singing. As you can tell they do sing in the daytime as well. I can't tell if that one's paired or not but if he's still singing at night at this time of year it will mean that he hasn't and he's still trying to attract a mate. And you can hear traffic I'm sure as well. And that's increased since the last time I was here. I was here at night that time but I've been here several times in between. And you can really hear people out and about again. What I'm doing is I'm scanning, uh, there's a set of electricity cables, and I'm scanning them because they're a really good place for turtle doves to perch. I've seen them here before last year several times. And I've got friends that walk their dogs here and have seen them this year. So I'm looking at everything vaguely pigeony through my binoculars. I'd really like to do is record their purring song which 40 or 50 years ago was a real soundtrack to summer but their numbers have crashed catastrophically and they're very rarely heard anymore. This is a bird whose numbers have gone down by 94% since only 1995 and there's a very real chance that we're going to lose them within our lifetimes. They're a small pigeon, much smaller than wood pigeons. Only a little bit bigger than a blackbird. Very pretty. And they're migratory, so they're only here in the summer to breed. And as I say, they eat tiny weed seeds, things like vetch and birds foot trefoil, things like that. And we're in the process of wiping out these weeds. And there are also big problems with their migratory routes. 
there's a really amazing project to save them, which is bringing in conservation organisations from lots of different parts of the world. Um, and if there's one thing you do after listening to this, please go to operationturtledove.org and um, see if you can help. It's that time in the podcast when I bring you some diary entries from the parson naturalist, Gilbert White. It's interesting to note that in his entry for 1782, he mentions a bug that's going round. I'd love to know what it was. There's another kind of bug he mentions too, the solstitial chafer. And that's the insect we now call the maybug. June the 15th, 1774. There seem to be more hirundines, particularly house martins and swifts, about Midhurst than with us. June the 15th, 1775. Tremendous thunder and vast hail yesterday at Bramshot and Headley, with prodigious floods. Vast damage done. The hail lay knee-deep. June the 15th, 1780 vivid aurora to the west. June the 15th, 1782. The martins over the garden door have thrown out two eggs they had not been sat on. A pair of partridges haunt Baker's Hill and dust themselves along the verge of the brick wall. Many people droop with this feverish cold, not only women and children, but robust labourers. In general, the disorder does not last long Neither does it prove at all mortal in these parts. June the 15th, 1787. Field peas in fine bloom. Many swifts at Wandsworth, Kingston, Cobham, etc. Haymaking general about London. Some meadow hay cut at Farnham. June the 15th, 1788. A double scarlet pomegranate buds for bloom. A bunting appears about the walks. This is a very rare bird at Selborne. The solstitial chafers swarm by thousands in my brother's grounds. They begin to fly about sunset, but withdraw soon after nine and probably settle on the trees to feed and to engender. Just have to pause and take in this astonishing performance by song thrush. With a backing singer with a wren. Song thrush very loud and repeats each phrase. Then chooses another phrase. And the wren with that mad little trill. By August, 
these birds will almost all be completely silent and in molt. Most of them we won't hear again till next spring. So I'm drinking it in while I can. I'm walking along a really wide, sunny ride, I guess. There's some grass that's, some of it's sort of over waist height on me. But there's a track through the middle of it, woods on either side, jackdaws. I'm thinking about the fact that my ears now are pretty good at picking out um, bird song and, and even if I don't know what it is my brain will flag up a little alert if I hear something unusual even if I'm thinking about something else so last night I was watching telly and an unfamiliar sound filtered in from outside my cottage gate and I muted the telly and didn't hear it again and put the telly back on and then heard it again I muted the telly and looked out and um, there were three seven-week-old bantams standing on the road <laughs> and peeping uh, and I'd heard them over the sound of the telly so my brain had gone it's a bird you, you don't know what it is you need to go and have a look and that's great but I don't really have it brilliantly for vision yet and I know that if I was here with a proper birder like David Darrell Lambert, he would be scanning all of the bushes and trees around and he'd probably be picking out turtle doves by now. There's probably thousands of them here, well there aren't because they're too scarce, but I mean, my brain hasn't yet done that work, the vision that it's done for sound. So if there is a turtle dove just perching and not purring, I might miss it. This week's guest is the writer and journalist Lucy Jones. I first came across Lucy um, via her book Foxes Unearthed, which came out in 2016. It was a really deep dive into the complexity of our relationship with foxes, from anthropomorphising them to seeing them as quarry, to fear, sometimes even hate. Her new book that's just come out is called Losing Eden, Why Our Minds Need the Wild. And it lays out what I think we already know on some really deep level about our, our need and our connection to nature, amassing the science, but while keeping it really readable and really lyrical too. She's joining us from Hampshire along with her Two children in the background who are three and one. Hello, I'm Lucy and I'm a writer and the author of Losing Eden, Why Our Minds Need the Wild. I didn't realise that our minds need the wild until about eight years ago when I reconnected with the rest of nature during a period of mental ill health. I had clinical depression and I was recovering from 
addiction and I found myself drawn to walking daily on Walthamstone marshes looking for the heron and the tansy and the waterfalls and the kestrels and the coots. At that time I was more likely to be found in a pub or a club so it's quite odd to be drawn to this natural space on a regular basis. I found it powerfully therapeutic, intensely helpful and I quickly wanted to investigate the mechanism by which spending time in nature seems to have a positive effect on human mental health. I've been sitting under my favourite beech tree. It's a huge and majestic tree in an urban cemetery near where I live. I ran in because it started pouring with rain. But I will, I will go outside again when the rain stops because I love the smell of petrichor. I bet you do too. The smell of the earth after it's rained. It's kind of metallic, earthy, almost ferric scent. One of the mind-blowing things that I, I researched for my book was fledgling science around how that smell affects the human brain. It's linked with areas of the brain associated with calmness and relaxation. And humans are acutely attuned to the smell, which I guess makes sense considering we evolved over millennia in nature, seeking irrigated landscapes. I'm going to go out now. I think it stopped and smell the earth. Okay, so I've followed the course of the power cables right across the site and I've got my binoculars on anything that looked vaguely pigeony. But so far, all I've seen are big, fat, smug, dim wood pigeons and no lovely, small, rare, pretty turtle doves at all. Last week, I was queuing at the supermarket and talking to the lady that was giving out the trolleys and she mentioned she had a starling nest in her back garden. And a man overheard and came over and told us both that he hated starlings, hated them. He said they were disgusting, disease-ridden. He said, I wasn't old enough to remember the piles of shit this high, indicating his waist, uh, that they were second only to the Taliban. And when I pointed out that they were red-listed, and there was a danger of them becoming extinct, he said, good. It's not the first time I've come across that level of emotion and disgust um, in relation to an animal. And it's always really interesting. We often put things into a category of pest or vermin, and we do that in order to other something. When we take them out of the category of wildlife, we can behave violently towards them. But the animals that we put in those categories are usually ones that are very, very like us. They are numerous, adaptable and clever. They're animals that have come into conflict with us in some way usually by being skilled enough to live alongside us. 
whereas it's the specialists, things like nightingales and turtle doves, that we have driven to the brink of extinction, at which point we then start to value them. I think in a lot of cases, the disgust that we feel towards certain animals is projected disgust. I think that really the disgust is with ourselves, but it's too painful to feel it. When you hear someone relating stories of animals like um, seagulls eating out of bins or um, urban pigeons eating vomit, who is it that's making that mess that they're living off? Who is it that's so numerous and so wasteful as to allow for this kind of behaviour? But here's the thing. In the last few months, I've noticed the beginnings of this feeling happening in myself to do with wood pigeons. I've moved to a village surrounded by oilseed rape fields and wood pigeons can decimate an oilseed rape crop very quickly. And so the fields are set up with all sorts of defences from kites to spinny flashy things to the very loud gas cannons um, that go off every half hour from very early spring until the middle of May. And this year I had one pointed at the back of my house. Um, and Scout was so frightened on her visits to me that she stopped wanting to go out into the back garden at all for a wee and began refusing to go on walks too. And we had a miserable time. And obviously that was upsetting and hard. So from that feeling that they are causing a problem all around me, I've begun to notice them uh, walking around eating the seeds spilled from my bird seed feeder. I got annoyed when a neighbour told me one was nesting at the end of the garden. It got worse and worse. I began ascribing to them all sorts of characteristics. Um, and, and also a kind of intentional thwarting of my plans. I began to see them as a foe, as an enemy. But the fact is that individual wood pigeons are doing absolutely nothing different than individual turtle doves are. They've both been born into a world that we have radically altered. In one case, to almost entirely remove their food sources and in, an, in another, to vastly increase them. And they're just doing what we're doing. They're just trying to get by. And, you know, I'm valuing these two birds so differently, also based on abundance. I'm desperate to see a turtle dove today because they're so rare. I'm ignoring and I'm mildly annoyed with every wood pigeon I see that turns out not to be one. But I think we do well to remember that another bird in this family, the passenger pigeon, was once the most numerous bird in North America and perhaps the world. And we wiped them out within 50 years, every single one. Flocks at one time were so large that they took several hours to pass overhead. And there were reports of people falling to their knees and praying at the approach of a flock, running indoors. The last passenger pigeon, who was called Martha, died in a Cincinnati zoo in 1914. We wiped them out. So what would it look like to stop thinking in terms of some animals being pests or vermin? 
is it possible to stop ascribing value based on numbers or their willingness to live alongside us? I don't know if it's even possible. We can only be human. There's no view from nowhere. But we can try and be aware of what we're bringing to the table when it comes to our feelings about wildlife. I think the first thing to remember is just that, is that all animals are wildlife. And the second is that they exist outside of our moral universe. Animals aren't good or bad, they just are. I've been writing a monthly nature notebook in the Times for some years now. This extract from 2015 is from when I still lived in London. It's about the house sparrow, another bird like turtle doves, whose value to us has been affected by first its numerousness and now its scarcity. The Times Nature Notebook, June 2015. Even in spring, when birdsong is at its most varied and lovely, I cherish the unmusical tweeting of a local gang of cockney sparrows as they racket around our back garden and squabble over the seed feeder. They used to roost communally in next door's yard, which was full of junk and, consequently, nesting places. Since it was tidied up, they've moved to the eaves of a tall house two doors down, from where, on sunny mornings, they gossip and fuss and scold the passers-by below. I can only hope the house's owners look kindly on their cheerful but noisy guests. House sparrows were everywhere when I was a child, so ubiquitous as to be almost invisible. Now the tiny group my London street supports is vitally important to a population that has crashed in recent years, in London and across the country too. Each year I send my records in to the Big Garden Birdwatch and wait for the results to be published, hoping sparrow numbers will start to recover. It hasn't happened yet. In the 19th century, sparrows were everywhere in the capital, living on grain fed to horses and spilled at the breweries and grain barges and forming vast flocks at London Zoo and in the Royal Parks. But by the millennium, they had entirely gone from most of inner London's green spaces, with huge declines in private gardens too. They fell by 58% between 1979 and 2015. The reasons are complex, and may include changes in farmland management, particularly for suburban populations, greater predation, notably by cats, increased pollution, including noise pollution, modern buildings that offer birds far fewer nesting sites, and a dearth of invertebrates on which sparrows feed their young. This last possibility is perhaps the most worrying, because its effect, if proven, could well be hitting not just sparrows but the entire food web. The RSPB's London House Sparrow Parks project aims to discover whether boosting insect numbers by planting wildflowers and letting grass grow long and set seed can have a knock-on effect on sparrow populations. If so, our predilection for paving over urban front gardens, our reliance on insecticides and weed killers, and our preference for a tidily mown sward in public green spaces may be in large part to blame. Well, I've circumnavigated the entire site 
now and I'm back at the power cables and I haven't seen a turtle dove, only lots of wood pigeons. I'm sorry not to be able to bring you the purring sound of these lovely little doves, um, but perhaps it's fitting for a bird that's in so much trouble. This week's poem is by the brilliant Ada Limon, whose collection The Carrying has won the uh, US Book Critics Circle Award. I'm very grateful to her publisher's Milkweed Editions uh, for giving me permission to include this poem. They're based in Minneapolis, so as you can imagine, they've had a tough week. The poem is read by my friend, the coach, actress and voiceover artist, Helen Ayres. Helen read the audiobook of my last novel, All Among the Barley, and did such a beautiful job of the Suffolk accent that even the locals were impressed. Instructions on Not Giving Up by Ada Limore More than the fuchsia funnels breaking out of the crabapple tree, more than the neighbours' almost obscene display of cherry limbs shoving their cotton candy-coloured blossoms to the slate sky of spring rains, it's the greening of the trees that really gets to me. When all the shock of white and taffy, the world's baubles and trinkets, leave the pavement strewn with the confetti of aftermath, the leaves come. Patient, plodding, a green skin growing over whatever winter did to us. A return to the strange idea of continuous living despite the mess of us. The hurt, the empty. Fine then, I'll take it, the tree seems to say, a new slick leaf unfurling like a fist to an open palm. I'll take it all.
It's flying away from me down the ride. 